Hello, and welcome to Tomorrow Today, a new podcast from SAE. We're honored today to have Brad Sturtz, Director of Government Affairs for Audi. Thanks for coming on, Brad. Thanks. Awesome. To start the podcast off, uh, if you can give us a high-level overview of you know of yourself and the work that you're doing at Audi, that'd be great. So personally, I started out as a journalist most of my career, uh, and then we all know what's happened in the newspaper business over the last decade or so. And uh, but p- most of my journalism career was spent as documenting the automotive industry, and uh, wrote a book called Taken for a Ride. And uh, when I decided to make the switch into the auto industry itself, it was a pretty easy transition. And what was that transition like going from a a journalist and into the auto business? Well, you're just telling a story a different way, right? And from a different perspective, but it's still all about communicating what you're trying to do with technology or what your corporate aims are, or just generally informing the public about different topics like automation or connected vehicles, things like that. So you still have to have a pretty good narrative to to sell the, the idea perfectly. Yeah. And you just don't deal with the public. You also, in your role, you deal with ele- elected officials on a state level, local level, and a federal level. Right. So I first got in when I joined Audi 11 years ago. It was really just to uh, corporate communications. And that very quickly became technology communications as the era of automation was beginning to rev up. Uh, we took a car up Pikes Peak with nobody in it, with Stanford University, and that kind of hooked me. And uh, very quickly as that uh, sort of growth on the hype curve began to take off, it was clear that we needed to do a lot better and a lot more communications with public officials to understand what was coming. Because a lot of people were, you know, uh, I don't want to assign Ill, Ill intent on their part, but it was the exciting new topic and they wanted to do something to make their mark on it without really understanding what some of the long-term implications might have been. And you and, and your colleagues in the public policy space have done an incredible job of level setting. And yeah. setting the expectations. Can you talk about some of those those hurdles where if you get an elected that gets really excited and we all know wants this tomorrow and you go in there very somber and try and level set? Well, yeah, you have to sort of pull people out of the science fiction magazine expectations and really know what's the reality of today for the technology, uh, what's coming, and uh, also what the future opportunities are. Sometimes, you know, in, in some jurisdictions, there's this sense that they can kick the can down the road and Maybe it's a little too scary, but there are real societal benefits that we're all working towards. So they need to hear that side of it, too. And there's, there's tremendous benefits. And Audi on your Marcom team has done a really good job of placements in movies. Yeah. You did the Audi R8 with Tony Stark, Iron Man, and everybody. Um, you know That's gone really well. And you did iRobot. And yeah. so when you meet with some of these elected officials, they say, well, I, I, want, I want that car from that movie. Does that, does that ever come up? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, it's, it's an easy way for people to see something they haven't quite at, caught on to actually being on the road yet. So, yeah, there's a little bit of a hero halo over things like that. Because yeah, it seems for the public, it gets them really excited. The politicians, it's like, oh, they start calling their uh, polit- um, their elected officials. And then it seems like, okay, it's like, well, this technology's in a movie, and eventually when's it going to come? Yeah. And you just have to continue to level set that. Yeah, you're right. Uh, usually the vehicles that are in the movies aren't terribly far away in terms of production, because that's the whole point of being in the movies. You want to get people excited about something that they could buy very soon. Um, but it's also an opening to, you know, work productively with, uh, certainly with public officials too, to say, hey, you saw that and let's talk about where this future's heading and 
you know, it's just sort of an opener, I guess, to begin a good conversation. And it's a, it's a great opener. And I'm really impressed with the work that you've done in your role in policy at Audi, where in 2014, you put uh, Governor Rick Scott in an automated Audi A7 on the, on the Thelman Highway in Tampa. Yeah. And that seems, from a press perspective, at least put Florida on the map. Putting a sitting U.S. governor in the vehicle was impressive. And you had the incredible write-up in the Wall Street Journal. And it seems to me that you had the governor in the vehicle, your safety engineer behind the wheel. That article seemed to kind of move that needle of this industry further and faster than anything we could imagine. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it was great because you got the, the chief officer of the state to recognize that this is an important thing that's coming. And maybe it's an opportunity for Florida to really be a leader in this, which they've since have made a very uh, good set of moves to, to make sure that they are in the leadership role and continue to be. Um, so it's good. And, you know, what we've also found that once you put a, an elected official or anybody, just a regular consumer, as we've done with SAE before, behind the wheel of, a, of an automated vehicle, their minds are kind of like, they're suddenly changed. Uh, a lot of the apprehensions go away and sometimes they think it's boring, but I think that's a good thing, right? It's, it's a great thing. Right. They lose the fear factor and, and it becomes something more that they can live with. And it's interesting that you talked about what we, um, the SAE demo days that we've partnered with PAVE, which we'll get into later, which you're a co-founder of, and the public perception. And we've had um, some individuals, oh, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. And they go for the vehicle and they go, first it was scary, then it was cool, and then I was bored. Yeah. And that's exactly what we want. But these individuals, and they go back into their local communities and they tell these really positive stories that this technology is going to have an incredible impact. I think one of the big things as an industry that Audi is doing a really good job of and the industry is starting to get there is that localizing the technology yeah, um, and saying, okay, this is how it's going to have a positive effect on your local community. Right. And we, need, we did definitely all need to do uh, a lot of work at a local level because that's truly where the rubber hits the road. That's where a lot of the social problems are playing out for good or not so good, you know. There's choices that have to be made, such as where do you pick people off, drop them off when we get to a pure robo-taxi or level four world. And that's not unique to Audi but uh, or Volkswagen Group, but I think it's very important once we start delivering pilots into cities and, and towns that we work very closely. Uh, um, I often like to say that it's neither side, public or private, has a perfect view on where the future is heading, especially in this area. So automation and connected vehicles are really the best way for true public-private partnerships to you know, work out for everyone. And you're right, we're seeing that in certain cities uh, around the United States, or certain uh, mayors that have been very innovative. They're saying, let's come in and let's learn together. <clears throat> and then there's other uh, governors and mayors and elected officials that are like, I don't want this technology. And one of those states is New York. Audi went in there and became the first company to test. I think you might still be the only company to test an AV in the state. Why did you make that decision to to go into New York to, to try it? Well, New York's the only state in the U.S. that has a requirement that one hand is on the steering wheel at all time, which, um, you know, for an automated vehicle, that's impossible. Uh, and especially when we were talking about deploying a level three vehicle, uh, we wanted to try to have that law at least amended to accommodate an, a self-driving technology. Um, and the you know, but from the New Yorker side of things, it's trying to imagine hands-free driving in a chaotic traffic environment like Manhattan. And so there was that sort of natural hesitancy. And of course, Matt, in the greater New York City area, 
has enormous power in the state house in Albany. So while there's communities and learning institutions in New York that are very excited about this, such as Buffalo and Rochester Institute of Technology, Syracuse University and so forth, it's still kind of the New York whale uh, that's got everybody a little hesitant about rolling this out in the state. So we keep trying. I mean, I come in for keep trying because New York State has had some in- incredible innovations. They've embraced innovation uh, going way back to Eastman Kodak in Rochester. Eastman Kodak provided, you know, incredible amount of jobs, provided a, a great opportunity to, to grow and loved New York State. And then as New York State kind of it just the technology trailed off, I have to give you a lot of credit for continuing to go there. Do you see other states similar to New York that are taking this halfway approach of, of not really embracing the technology, but kind of dancing around it with a lot of restrictions? There's other states that are still wrestling with how to, whether they get very prescriptive with the regulations or uh, wanting to avoid um, sort of suffocating the growth of the technology. And I think, again, that's where working very closely with state officials, first responders, local governments, so that if there is a concern or something happens or an issue that needs to be clarified, there's a name and a face to the company that's got a car running in their streets um, versus kind of just dumping a car on the road and saying, good luck. And the, the industry as a whole has done a really good job of interacting with law enforcement and first responders. And when you meet with a first responder or law enforcement official, they're generally interested and curious. Yeah. And they, they want to learn. Why do you think that, for the most part, law enforcement first responders have more of a curiosity to learn than, say, the elected officials? Is it being driven by the local politics? Well, uh, maybe somewhat. But I think, you know, from a first responder standpoint, they see the outcome of human driving when it's at its worst, right? Speeding, really violent collisions, deaths, and so forth. Um, just erratic driving behavior. So they know when we, you know, the human brain is probably the greatest driving machine ever and that will ever be uh, developed. On the other hand, we also are prone to a lot of distractions and uh, bugs, if you will. Mm-hmm. So it's not a perfect uh, guide for the car, but it's pretty good. And um, I think, you know, it was interesting when we did the, the demos in, in Albany for state officials there, there was a requirement that we had a state trooper behind the car at all times. And so this went on all day. And the, at the end of the day, the trooper who did not believe at all in automation came away just dramatically impressed and said it was interesting to him because he could tell when the automated system was driving and doing a better job than our safety driver. Wow. The human driver taking over. So, you know, just sort of trailing behind and watching how well it kept the center of the lane and, and did all the right things with the turn signals and so forth. So that, you know, they're excited. I think they also see the opportunity to reduce the 36,000 plus uh, fatalities that happen in the U.S. every year. And, uh, you know, they like to see how this can be developed to limit that. And that one interaction that you had with that law enforcement official, how do we scale that? Because it seems that that, that law enforcement official's mind completely changed. Yeah. And he, be, he went from not sure to becoming an advocate of it because he sees, like you said, he sees crashes and things that, you know, hopefully that we'll never see or, or never experience. So I think it'll scale. You know, there was a time early on when we all thought that we'd flip a switch, light switch and robo-taxis would be crawling the earth. And... This is what drives, I think, a lot of fear for local officials is like, it's going to be here and we're not going to know how to contend with it. Uh, A little bit like 
the experience that some cities had with ride hailing, right? Where suddenly it appeared and what now what do we do? Or e-scooters where some cities are having a difficult time with it. Um, this is different. You're gonna have, I think, pretty clearly select cities start up as pilots and the pilots are gonna be selected as places where you could conceive of having commercialization into a real business. And there's time as you're, as you're testing the cars and then increasingly moving to commercialization to, to really work and understand and see what's working well for a city, what isn't, what are the city's aims? Do they have a lot of elderly uh, residents that need to be moved around better or get to medical appointments? Is the disabled community big? Are they trying to get better transportation for people of lesser means, economic means? So it's just also an opportunity for the innovator to understand what is the city trying to accomplish and hopefully coming to the middle there. Now it's interesting because the cities are used to, oh, all the TNCs are going to show up overnight, flood my streets. The scooters are going to show up overnight, flood my streets. The bikes are going to show up and flood my streets. Is it one of these things that's like, oh, no, not again? We've learned this lesson. Yeah. We're not going to do this again. And do you think that's kind of where the resistance is until you go in there and say, listen, we want to understand the needs of your residents and work with you? And then once that, that guard goes down, where do you, do they open up and say, wow, okay, this is not the, the fourth time this is going to happen to us? Well, you know, I think what's, what's turning out is that a lot of pilots are being directed in states or cities that are welcome to and really want to work closely with uh, the different companies, right? Um, you're not going to necessarily go f in, a, in a climate where it's hostile or where there's sort of us versus them thinking or, you know, where there's sort of adverse conditions, the, the roads are in bad shape and so forth. So that's all a part of it to have a good give and take. And listen, I think, you know, the auto industry uh, definitely has the opportunity here to show we really do want to understand what a local society needs and wants and work with them on that. But you mentioned about uh, getting um, the first responders used to this earlier. You know, there's only a very limited number of, of automated vehicles that are capable of a level four uh, technology anyway on the roads, and they're almost all in testing or fairly, you know, uh, controlled uh, pilots like Waymo's doing in Arizona. Um, so there's just, you can't, you can't always bring the cars to the people, unfortunately. A lot of times you have to bring the people to the cars or just have that sort of early dialogue to begin to set their expectations. And dialogue's key if you, and you're dancing around, and I have to go to one of my favorite topics is Florida. Yep. And, and setting the dialogue, and a, a friend of both of ours is State Senator Brandis. Yep. He set the dialogue and, right. and set the roadmap under uh, Governor Scott, and then last year, Governor DeSantis signed uh, House Bill 311, which sent the message that Florida is open for business. And you talked about two interesting facts, business and going into a, a welcoming environment. Yeah. We're seeing Argo is running a pilot, which they're going to commercialize in Miami. When you look in the, in the Audi corporate policy team and the lawyers and the business folks and all the various individuals inside of Audi look for deployment, how much of that account of that do you take into account of here's from a, a governor to a state senator to the local mayor, Miami-Dade Mayor Gimenez, who's very welcoming to this technology, to Alice Bravo, who runs the day-to-day -day for transportation, versus, say, a state like California, where you have a hostile climate. 
Right. Does that kind of start to drive you south, even though all the engineering is happening in the San Francisco Bay Area? Well, you know, I think San Francisco and California had the advantage because Silicon Valley was really at the forefront of this. And, of course, Stanford is sort of the font of a lot of the robotics between Stanford and Carnegie Mellon. So that was sort of the wellspring for all this. And, you know, California got out early. They may have wished that some of the regulations that they codified into law had a little more flexibility. Um, and it's not that I don't think that they're unwilling, but there are hurdles in California and, and things that are make it a little more difficult. And that's why I think we need to have a really good dialogue. Uh, and Florida is a great example of that to say, OK, we don't we're not trying to cram something down your throat uh, from, at, you know, at the state level all the way up to the governor. But we do want to, you know, help you understand kind of where we are, what we need to do to get testing done right. You know, there's a lot of sometimes desire to push all testing onto test tracks, but you need the real world environment for this to continue to, to grow. So, you know, that's why I think Florida has done a great job of looking where there might be opportunities to uh, open up state laws, not in a, you know, totally industry friendly way, but in a practical way to see what's possible and make sure that development keeps happening. And look, Florida's got a huge opportunity because of their retiree community where, you know, 10,000 baby boomers a day are retiring right now. 10, 15 years, a lot of them are going to start losing their ability to see. That's a gigantic tidal wave of uh, demographics that's going to be left without a way to get around very well. And golf carts in retirement communities aren't going to be the only answer. So there's a lot of hope and... and uh, anticipation for this, both from elderly communities and uh, state officials that really want to keep their population mobile. Because from the, the, the elderly community, a full level four, level five vehicle gives elderly individuals one thing that we can't give them today without, without headache is quality of life. Right. It allows them to um, go to the beauty parlor, visit a friend, go to the grocery store, or have that outing that that they feel good about themselves. They're no longer trapped in their house. Yeah, I'm taken by uh, Johns Hopkins University is really looking at it as a public health benefit. And it's public health what? Because I think there's $19 billion lost every year because people who need medical appointments can't get to them. Um, so there's missed appointments and treatments and so forth that make things worse. But also they're, they're really concerned about as you get older or you have a disability, you increasingly become isolated, so your walls start to close in on you. And to your point, this allows people who can't drive themselves anymore. And by the way, today's other alternatives are incredibly expensive. Um, so it, it opens up possibilities that there will be more ways to live and, and be among friends and, and neighbors and so forth. And, and the Hopkins thing, we could I'll talk to you about that offline, but when you look at the, the public health element of autonomy, do you think, and I don't have any data to back this up, but if that individual can have that quality of life, get to the you know the doctor before an infection spreads, do you think the life AVs could technically increase the, the American life expectancy? Well, I think that's the idea: is that you know if people can't get to their medical appointments and they don't go see their doctor when they're supposed to, or get their prescription refilled, that has dramatic uh, repercussions. So, you know, you, you, it's cert we can't promise that there's going to be a greater life expectancy because of AVs, but, you know, I think they're very easily, you can see how their health benefits might 
might be improved. And speaking of health benefits, um, earlier we had uh, Dr. Mark Rosekind, um, who we both know very well on yeah. the podcast, and we were talking about safety. And uh, Dr. Rosekind said, you know, when there's an, a crash with a celebrity or an incident, it's on the news over every major international newspaper, TMZ, every Twitter, all over the place. But if an in, when an individual uh, that is not famous gets into a crash and perishes, they're no longer with us, there's no media. Right. And Dr. Roska and I had this really <clears throat> fascinating conversation about that person was a celebrity to their family. So if we eliminate all of the road deaths, the, the expectancy of life will go up as well. And I just think that we have to frame as an industry that there's so many benefits to autonomy. It's not just developing a business. It's actually really good uh, for society. Yeah. And speaking of being really good for society, um, you recently launched about a year ago as the co-founder of uh, PAVE, the Partners for Automated Vehicle Education. And John Hopkins is a, is a member of that. And you put together a really diversified group. Including SAE. Yeah, SAE is a um, steering committee member. Could you uh, just talk about the incredible work that PAVE's doing as the coalition and where you hope to take PAVE in the future? So two or three years ago, as legislation was starting to really uh, expand greatly in the states and the federal government was coming out with uh, their AV policy 1.0 and then 2.0, um, you know, common throughout all this activity was a call for greater education of the consumers because just about everybody realized that they, as policymakers, weren't terribly up to speed with where everything was the status of the industry. And they pretty accurately guessed that most of the public wasn't either, and surveys showed that to be true. So, um, but while there was all these calls for education, there was really no plan on how to do it. And nobody really had any proposals of doing it. So I spoke with uh, Debbie Hurstman, who was then president of the National Safety Council, and you know, asked if she could envision joining together and starting to build this group. And bit by bit, we developed it, and it launched last year in January with about 24 steering committee members, and now there's 61. Um, there's very strong interest to have a parallel organization in the UK and Europe. Uh, so the excitement for the opportunity is growing, and we've been sort of in this sort of managing the growth and the excitement, and now we have to really get down to educating people in different ways. And, and speaking of uh, educating the public, there's a lot of false narratives in the marketplace around autonomy. One of the largest, most headlining uh, f false narratives is around the California disengagement reports, that the vehicles are safe, they're not safe. And recently, Kyle Voth, the co-founder and CTO of Cruise, came out and said, we need to stop this. It's causing a problem. Yeah. How do we stop all these narratives? Because the media just runs with, and you're a former journalist, the media runs with these narratives. Oh, this vehicle only drove this many miles without a disengagement, it's not safe. But you know from an automotive, uh, working for an automotive company, not every mile is the same. Right. Not only is not every mile the same, but not every company is testing in California. So our company does a great portion of its testing in Germany and Europe. That doesn't show up in the California disengagement report. So it looks like we're driving zero miles when, in fact, we're quite active. Uh, for those that are testing in California, you know, you could rig a, a, log a ton of miles where you're just straight as an arrow down a lane. It doesn't really help you improve the software, improve the, the 
sensing capabilities of the car and sort of really test the limits of what they can do and, you know, push it to be even better and better. And you really need that. You know, you need to have that ability to push the technology or try out new versions of a sensor, for example, uh, to see how it's performing in the real world. And that might cause a disengagement report, which then the media picks up as a bad news when, in fact, it's actually progressing the capabilities. Yeah, it's going in a positive direction. And to me, the disengagement reports for cause twofold issues. One, I believe that it causes issues with politicians in other states as you're interacting with the local community. Is your car safe? And with the public and the two, th and the common thread that holds those together, it's eroding trust. Right. I think, you know, there's been a lot of conversations, a lot of activity, even over the last six months to a year, where, okay, that's maybe the only window that a lot of the public has onto how capable automated systems are performing. So maybe we can come up with better ways to... Uh, provide certainty that the responsible testing is going on and the technology is uh, being responsibly deployed. And I think you're going you're gonna to start seeing a lot more activity where the industry voluntarily says, here, here's some ways that you as a community can have some faith that this is not going to be a hazard on your roads. Because trust is one of the key, if not the key element of getting the vehicles on the road and Tim Hartford, who's a senior writer for the Financial Times, recently wrote a brilliant book called 50 Innovations That Shape the Modern Economy. And in the book, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you this quick passage of what he spoke about. Trust, I'd love to get your opinion on it. Trust is an essential component of markets. It is so essential that we often don't even notice it. As a fish doesn't notice water. In developed economies, enablers of trust are everywhere. Brands, money back, guarantees, and of course, repeat transactions with a seller that can easily be located. He was referencing the early days of eBay building trust with the seller feedback. Yeah. What can we do as an industry to mimic what eBay did to build trust? Because the public, the listeners that are listening that uh, might be younger, to remember in the early days of eBay, you gave money, you didn't know the product was going to come, you didn't know that you were going to get your money back because this is pre-PayPal. This is right. 2009. And eBay developed the trust system, and there's an argument that Tim makes in his book, without that trust system, eBay would have never scaled, e-commerce would have never taken off. Yeah. What is going to be our defining trust moment in autonomy? Well, you know, there's, there's uh, some policymakers who like to point that they know that a 16-year-old is driven being able to drive safely on the roads because they gave them a test, and a written test and a driving test and an eye test. Um, what they don't recognize is that for decades after that 16-year-old gets their driver's license, they have no idea how that human being's operating a vehicle until something really bad happens. So, and we all just sort of take it for granted that the other person on the road's going to operate in a sane manner. So, you know, you're, you're, this is 100% correct. Trust is the underlying principle for everything that's going to happen to make this a commercial reality. And trust flows from better understanding, and that's going to be a lot of education work. There's going to need to be some devices, I think, for local communities to know that if company XYZ's vehicle is on their roads, that it's being operated and it, can, uh, it knows how to perform capably in traffic. Um, and I think we're going to need to come up with ways to show that that's indeed the case, whether it's some sort of uh, stamp of approval or something that states themselves say they're comfortable with, not the industry saying you must accept this. Um, I think that's going to have to be the way to go. And then continuing to educate, to communicate more people in uh, vehicles is going to be key.
And the more exposure that comes, the more people become comfortable with it, and they see these things aren't going to hop a sidewalk and, and plow into pa uh, pedestrians nearby, but that they're actually a force for good in the traffic problems that we all deal with right now. Yeah, and um, you know, formerly living in the L.A. area, there's nothing more than the residents of Los Angeles like to do is to reduce their commute times. Right. Um, they'd be very happy. And there's a lot of companies that are starting, um, from the insurance perspective, they're starting to work on trust, um, which is really positive. Yeah. And PAVE's doing really good work with the education. You and Audi are doing incredible work with the education of lawmakers and the staff. I think that you've, you're the unsung hero and all the other policymakers on the Hill of educating the staff members. And let's dive into the, the AV Start Act for mm -hmm. a minute. You and I have had multiple conversations. It's been start, go, start, go. When and, and if do you think we will ever have an, an AV Start Act? Uh, well, there's work going on. And what's great is that both parties and both chambers are working on it together to come up with something. But, you know, last time around at the, at the end of the process, uh, the trial lawyer lobby uh, decided they wanted to throw a wild card into the discussions and essentially bottled it up. Um, I'm not entirely sure that won't be the case again this time, um, but we'll see how the discussions go. But it's good, you know, that we're able to get, there was last time around, there was a lot of uncertainty over what the uh, sort of the federal preemption or state preemption. Um, and really all that was asking to do is maintain NHTSA's authority over the design, construction, performance of the vehicle as they've traditionally done since DOT was created <clears throat> and leave the state's responsibilities pretty much as they are today. Once you kind of got states um, that want to be more active in this to understand when the federal government wasn't trying to take their authority away from them, uh, I think that helped out a lot. So there's issues like that and then there's, you know, concerns about how many exemption cars are going to be able to be put on the road you know right now you're limited to a very small number of vehicles every two years or so and it's just not enough to do really practical testing so um, these are all the things that we're going to have to to keep discussing so good news is that there does seem to be a consensus among the both parties and both chambers to at least come up with a good proposal but it's also tough in an election year and wow. with what's going on in the Senate right now with impeachment and all these other distractions. And uh, so we'll see. I'm and not going to say no, but I'm not going to say I'm 100% optimistic either. And since Audi is, and all the majority of, I would say majority of the companies are focused on <clears throat> launching in initial pilot cities for commercial services, yeah. is the, the, you'll be able to launch without an AV start act, you just go to friendly localities with, with state laws? Is that how you're going to start to initially roll out your services? Yeah, but you're still, if it's a vehicle, as Cruz just showed, or they've shown a couple times now, with a unique interior, no steering wheel, no pedals, you're still going to need the NHTSA exemptions for that. And so that becomes a question of how many exemptions are going to be uh, available to do that. So, so I think that's one sticking point, but otherwise, it, that's why I was saying earlier it boils down to really very strong community relations because it's the states and the cities where you want to deploy in the states just as a starting point. And I believe that once these pilots then moving up to early commercialization begins to show that it's actually not a disaster, as some mm -hmm. people fear, that it'll start then quickly picking up momentum and others will follow. 
And as Audi looks to commercialization of AV services, what does the future hold for, for Audi in that front? Well, our company, our group has undergone a lot of reorganization as we try to figure out what's the best business model. And, you know, from a pure level four kind of robo-taxi, that's going to be a very tough business where the vehicles and the miles are very commoditized. And there, I think, is the opportunity to really focus on what kind of service or uh, atmosphere are you providing inside the car? What is it like for, and what benefits can the person gain from taking your car versus somebody else's robo-taxi? And, you know, from Audi as a premium car manufacturer, it's always a very difficult thing, like, why do you need a $100,000 robo-taxi? I think there's a, you know, there's a segment where that will work out, but to, to really dive in fully, it's uh, difficult to see the, to the end. And that's why a lot of the robo-taxi work has been shifted over to um, Volkswagen Group, where it might more, make more sense to develop that mobility-as-a-service business. And you put a smile on my face because you mentioned things that and everybody that knows me knows I'm really big on the experience in the in-car yeah. entertainment. And I thank you for, for saying that Audi is a premium brand. And your customer base that buys your, your vehicles today, um, you know, your S8s, they're accustomed to a certain type of vehicle with a certain type of experience. And it's going to be really interesting in the future as Audi starts to experiment with new in-car features and uh, what you showed at CES with the, the chauffeur AV concept. I'm really excited and Brad, I can't thank you enough for coming on the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast and having this wonderful conversation with us. So thank you. Always great to be with you. Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcast, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.